This evening, we will be in Genesis chapter 18, so let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me. Genesis chapter 18. This story that we're going to read about, where Sarah finds out about the birth of Isaac and that it's going to come through her body, is uh, really becomes a setting for the next story. This, this story here is actually the beginning of a larger story, a larger narrative that's taking place. And the narrative of which I'm speaking is, is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels that come here to visit with Abraham and Sarah are, are really just making a pit stop, but really on their way to uh, talk to Abraham about the, uh, the danger that's coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so chapters 18 and 19 talk about, about that story. And this story that we're going to read here, chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, is the setting. It provides the setting. It shows what happens leading up to that. And it also, I believe, we'll talk about this at the end, it, it provides a contrast for us between a couple who believes in God, now not fully, we, they, uh, they, they do have their, their problems with their faith, but, but overall they believe in God and you have another person uh, or couple, Lot and his wife, who, who do not uh, do so well. And so you have a contrast between how God's going to accomplish His plan through different people. And uh, so we will... Uh, We'll, um, we'll see how that plays together when we get to that next week. Uh, actually, we're probably going to pick that up at the beginning of the next new year. That um, Each one of these people, Abraham and Sarah, now have taken an opportunity to try to find an heir another way, to try to find a descendant, a son. Remember, for Abraham, when God told him that there would be a son that would come through him, he said, no, 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 you sure about that? Are you sure it's not Eleazar, the one of my household, the servant in my house? Isn't he my heir? Make him the one. And God says, no, it's going to come through you. It's going to come through your body, Abraham. And so uh, he believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. Chapter 15, verse 6 says. And so then 15 years pass, still nothing, still no son through Abraham's body. Certainly Sarah had heard about this by this time. And so she comes up with a scheme that Abraham goes along with, and that is to give Abraham as a wife her uh, servant, Hagar. And so they scheme in order to get a son, and they have a son, indeed, through Hagar. And now God doesn't say anything about it. doesn't become clear to them that this was wrong for them to do that. It doesn't become clear that this is not the child of promise. Not until the child was 13 years old. We saw last week in chapter 17. When God comes back and says, Now, here's what I'd like you to do. I promised you a son. Did I not? On the basis of my character, that I am God Almighty, I promised you a son. And and uh, Abraham says, Yes, I, I understand that. It's Ishmael, right? God says, No. I will bless him because he did come through your body, but but that's not the child I had intended. I have another one in mind. I have another great blessing in store for you, and he will come through Sarah. And uh, so each of them now have schemed in order to, or at least thought 
lacked belief that, that God would provide an heir some other way. And now God's going to make it clear, not only to Abraham, but now to Sarah, that she will clearly know that God's going to bless uh, Abraham's descendants through her. That she, that's why her name was changed from my princess to princess, Sarah. She's going to be the mother of nations. She's going to be the mother of kings. So let's read chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Chapter 18, we'll begin with verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may go on, since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do, as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, and at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. God often unveils His plan one piece at a time. He doesn't give the whole picture. We've talked about this before. And I think this is what's happening here. He's starting to unveil a little bit more of His plan to to His servants. They don't have, remember, the full written Word of God like we do. In fact, they had probably no portion of the Word of God since Micah, or, or since uh, Moses is still writing it uh, well after they had died. So, so they don't have any written revelation of God. All they have is, is these visions from God, these, these encounters with God. That's, by the way, why we don't need those things anymore. We don't need God to come in a miraculous way. We don't need God to come in, uh, in visions or in dreams to tell us what He wants us to do. We don't need God to speak in a still, small voice. Because we have His completed revelation. And so God unveils His plan for them one part at a time. The Lord appears to Abraham in verses 1-8. through The setting is that Abraham is in a tent near the Oaks of Mamre, which is in Hebron, according to chapter 13, verse 18. Remember, Hebron was a place that Abraham had settled before. This was a place inside of the land of Canaan. And he had settled here near the Oaks of Mamre. And notice where he is living. 
the end of verse 18, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Not, not the door of his home, but it was a tent. So he's still a wanderer and we should not be surprised by this. Because Hebrews 11 verse 9 says, By faith he, Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as a foreigner, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Throughout Abraham's life, at least the life uh, after the time from which God called him, he was living in tents. He never got to settle down in the land that God had promised to him. And this is where we find him when this encounter with God comes. Notice the timing of the visit at the end of the verse in the heat of the day, probably noon or early afternoon. And now Abraham encounters these three men in verses 2 through 8. And the first question we need to answer is, who is it that appeared to Abraham? It says, verse 2, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite to him. So who is it that appeared to Abraham precisely? I think the text gives us a window into who that is. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to him. Verse 2 tells us that it's three men. So some people would argue that these two are equal. The Lord is the three men. They say that this is actually the triune God there before Abraham, that he's there in three persons, three human persons. But there are two reasons why I believe that these three men do not include the Father and the Spirit. The first is is perhaps pretty straightforward. When, when the Father and the Spirit appear in Scripture, how do they normally appear? In what forms do they appear? Can you think of any ways that the Father appears in the Scripture? Okay, a fire. Anything else? Okay, wind or pillar of cloud, right? And the Spirit is, comes as, as a wind or fire or, remember, descending from heaven like a dove on Jesus Christ at His baptism. So, in no place in all the Scriptures do we have the Father or the Spirit appearing in a human form. They are Spirit. They, they don't appear in human form. Anytime you have a, a pre-incarnate, a, a, a time where before Jesus Christ is born, you have an appearance of God, it's usually in the form of the Lord. And if not, then it's in the form of a fire or some other thing. But if it's, a, if it's in the form of a human, it is the Christ, Christ the Lord. Verse, uh, the second reason why I believe that these three men do not include the Father and the Spirit is because of the larger context. Look at chapter 18, verse 22. Chapter 18, verse 22. So, so what we have here is we're trying to determine the, the identity of these three men. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And skip down to verse 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate. Okay, so if we, if we follow the progression of the passage, what we have is the Lord appears to Abraham, chapter 18, verse 1. Three men are standing there. That's who Abraham sees. Chapter 18, verse 22, the men leave. And apparently, which men leave? 19, verse 1 says that it's the two angels. 
So what I think is happening here is we have we have the Lord appearing to him in the form of a human, and then we have two angels appearing alongside of him. And the two angels go on ahead to go. You'll see this in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah when they go to Lot's city there in Sodom. Remember, Lot tries to to uh, to protect them from from the the ravage wild uh, beast of of humans that live in his city. Uh, but while he's there, Abraham is speaking with the Lord, the third member of the party, right? So that's why I would suggest to you that, that we have two angels here and then the pre-incarnate Lord. Further, within the context that the person who talks to Abraham is the Lord. Look down to verse 13 of chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, okay, so whoever these three men are, one of them has to be the Lord Himself. Verse 17, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Verse 20, And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Verse 26, So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare. And verse 33, As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. So these three men include the Lord and two angels. Now, the second question we need to answer is, did Abraham know who they were? Did Abraham know who they were? Notice his activity. Verse 2, When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves and that you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. Okay, so notice his activity. Verse 2 says that he bows low to the ground. Verse 3, he calls him my Lord. And if you have a New American Standard Bible like I am reading from, then you have in verse 3, notice, capital L, my Lord. So the translators of the New American Standard believe that this is the Lord, uh, that, that they believe that Abraham thinks that this is the Lord. Notice verse 5, at the end, he calls himself their servant, since you have visited your servant. So the, 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 it very well could be that Abraham thought, recognized that this was the Lord himself. Look at verse 3 again and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your, capital Y, your sight. Sounds like he knows who this is. In verses 6-8, through eight, we're going to see that he serves him and the two angels hand and foot. So it, it seems as if Abraham knows who these three people are. Um, but I would suggest to you that, that he actually has no idea who these three people are. and I, That's why I use the word seems. It seems as if he knows them. But I actually think he doesn't know them at all. The first reason is because of the use of the phrase, my Lord, in Genesis. Whenever this phrase is used, my Lord, in Genesis, it's always referring to a human master. Let me show you. Verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now, is she talking about the Lord God? Is she talking about the Lord Christ? No. She's talking about whom? Abraham, right? 
Shall I have pleasure? Shall I have the pleasure of bearing a child while my Lord Abraham is also old? Okay, so she uses it in, the, in that way. Turn to chapter 24. See another example of how this phrase, my Lord, is used. And, and it's used actually several other times. Chapter 24 is one example. But let me just mention a couple others while you're turning there. Chapter 24, verse 17. Um, when Ephron is talking to Abraham about where to bury Sarah in chapter 23, uh, he calls Abraham my Lord. When Jacob is trying to make amends with Esau, he calls his brother Esau my Lord. Joseph, uh, Joseph's brothers, when they come back to Joseph and they recognize him as second in command, they call him my Lord. All of those are small l, Lord. My master. We could say it that way, my master. Here's another example in chapter 24, verse 17. This is when uh, Abraham's servant is choosing a wife for Isaac. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. This is just a natural way for people to talk back in that time. They would call them, uh, they would call other people master or lord. Now, the second reason why I would suggest that Abraham had no clue who these three men were, at least initially, is because of, chap- of Hebrews chapter 13. Will you turn there in your Bibles? Hebrews chapter 13, because I'd like you to see this. This exhortation comes from the writer of Hebrews, and he uses an Old Testament example. He doesn't state specifically what the example is, but I... I uh, I believe that he's actually thinking about this story in Genesis 18. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And uh, this isn't... This isn't uh, this isn't uh, this doesn't close the case on it, but look in your mar- the margin of your Bible if you have cross references under verse two. You see Genesis 18 in there. Okay, it also has Genesis 19 because Lot also entertained some angels as well. The point here that the writer of Hebrews is saying is that you need to entertain strangers, not that we could potentially entertain angels in our day, but in the past, what has happened when people have entertained strangers? They've actually entertained angels unaware without knowing it. Turn back to Hebrews, or, sorry, to Genesis chapter 18. Because I think what's going on here is Abraham has no clue who these strangers are and yet he treats them with great respect. Moses is giving us a window, the writer of this this uh this book, he's giving us a window into what southern hospitality is like. I say southern because uh, Abraham is in the southern part of Israel here. So this is ancient Near East southern hospitality. Now, I do believe that Abraham figures it out later. I think he does figure out who he's talking to, particularly once you get to verse 22 when he's, when he's having this conversation about whether or not he should spare the city of Sodom. And he says, please, Lord, if, if you will, if you'll just spare them, because there are so many righteous people. And, and he says, fine, I will if there are 50. But they're not, there aren't 50, are there? No. Well, what if we lower that amount? And, and remember, he gets all the way down to 10. And God says, no, I'm not going to, to spare them. 
So I think Abraham figures it out later. But at this point in chapter 18, at least through the first eight or nine verses, he has no clue who these people are. And what that says to us is that Abraham treats strangers with great respect. Look back to verse 2 because notice how he treats them again. He runs to greet them. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He didn't send a servant and say, you know, give them a magazine to read. And when they're finished, or when I'm ready for them, I'll come out and greet them. That's what you expect from a great man of wealth and power. But no, he runs to greet them. He bows low to the ground. He calls them his master. And he calls himself a servant. This idea of calling himself a servant in verses 3 and 5, I think is probably uh, explained more clearly if we look at 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6. I'll just read them for you. For in this way, Peter writes, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord or Master. And you have become her children if you do what is right uh, without being frightened by any fear. To, to call yourself a servant to another person or to call that person a master is to, to give up the desire, your own personal desires for their desires. You're submitting them. You're giving them up for their desires. And this is what Abraham did amazingly to strangers. He gives up his desires for their desires. And that's why you see him serving them hand and foot. He even sees this as a favor. Look at verse 3 again. He sees this as a favor on their part. Verse 3 says, "...and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight..." Please do not pass your servant by. In other words, I desire to serve you as a stranger so much so that I would count it a favor if you stayed here and allowed me to do so. So, verse 4 says that he, sent, he, he asked them if they would be willing to allow him to send for water. Notice verse 4, please let a little water be brought and wash your feet. He recognized that in a hot, dusty climate, their feet would be dirty and in need of washing. She sends for water. He also allows them to rest. At the end of verse 4, it says, and rest yourself under the tree. And then verses 5-8, through He prepares a lavish meal for them. Notice the modesty here. In verse 4, He says, do you want me to bring a little bit of water? And then how much does He bring? Verse 5, and I will bring a, a piece of bread that they may refresh themselves. So He says, I'll bring you a little water and a, li- and, and, and a piece of bread. And And what happens when he goes to prepare it ends up being this huge, extraordinary meal with a choice calf and everything. Notice his prioritized preparation. It's not as if he says, okay, I'll do this when I get time. He he is interested in taking care of of serving them immediately. So he runs to Sarah and he says to her in verse 6, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour. Notice, it's not the worst kind of flour, the ordinary flour. It's the finest flour. It's the fine flour. The good stuff. Prepare it. Three measures is either uh, not exactly clear, but it's either 3.75 gallons or 6 gallons. I don't know if you've done any cooking lately, but I don't remember the last time I've used that many gallons of flour in one recipe. 
So she's using quite a bit of fine flour, and what she's making are these bread cakes, probably like our pitas, flat cakes, flat flat bread cakes to, to eat. And then Abraham sends in verse 7 for his servants to get a choice calf. He could have easily said, you know what, we have this large flock of animals. Let's just take one of these that's about to die, perhaps that's a little bit scrawny, one that I couldn't use for a sacrifice to God or something. We'll just use that one. But no, he brings a choice, a choice calf from his herd and asks his servants to prepare it quickly. And as he serves it, he brings along with it, verse 8, curds and milk. This is likely yogurt of some kind and milk. And notice Abraham as they're eating at the end of verse 8. And he placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. I picture Abraham here standing there like a servant. What do servants do while their masters are eating? They sit down at the table with them? No, they stand up and they wait to see if they're needed at any time, right? Abraham's standing there waiting for these strangers to eat and see if he can be used of them at any time, and he watches them eat. Now, you would not expect this from a man of great wealth and power, but this speaks to Abraham's humility, his great faith in God. The greatest leader of his time, according to Jesus, is the greatest what? The greatest leader is the greatest servant. And you wonder why Abraham is memorialized in the Scriptures. Now, we, we, we have all of his faults in here too. Okay, So we, we recognize that he is a sinner. He's not perfect. But the Scriptures point to him as an example because he is a great servant. Now, you may be thinking about your own life right now and wondering why you haven't been put in a position of leadership, maybe at your work or maybe in this church. Why haven't I been put in a position of leadership? You know what Jesus' answer to you would be? Let's see you serve. The greatest servant is the greatest leader. Get down on your hands and knees and be willing to do whatever, no matter who sees or not. That is the greatest leader. That's the greatest type of leader. That's the type that God is looking for. And that's the type of leader, that's the type of person that God is working through, by the way. He works through people who are humble, who are not in it to get praise for themselves. He's looking for people who are getting in it to, to serve other people, the needs of others, try to take care of their needs, and do it for the purpose of glorifying God because that's what He wants. Abraham was that type of man. So we have the appearance of the Lord and these two angels. I kind of uh, envision that, that the Lord is standing in the middle and the two angels are standing off in the wings, but they're also served with Abraham. And, and uh, now we have, in verses 9-15, through 15, this conversation between the Lord and Abraham about Sarah. Sarah is off in the distance. She's in the tent listening on. Apparently she's close enough to hear, but far enough away to, uh, to, to be hidden. And, uh, and this is the Lord's promise to Sarah in verses 9 through 15. We see the promise in verses 9 and 10. And they said to him, 
Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. So here's the promise the Lord makes. And perhaps this is when Abraham figures it out. This very well could be at this point in Abraham's mind just a messenger, someone who's coming on behalf of God and giving him a message. But it could be that Abraham figures it out at this point that this is actually the Lord. This is the repetition of the promise that he had made to Abraham. Look back to chapter 17, verse 15. Remember when God was renewing His covenant or reminding Abraham of His covenant? Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you should not call her name Sarai, my princess, but Sarah, princess, shall be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give her a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. One of the purposes of this divine visitation here with the Lord and these two angels is to reinforce for Sarah herself that this was actually going to happen. Now, Abraham could have easily told Sarah about this. Maybe he did, and she just didn't believe him. Uh, It could be that Abraham didn't tell her because he wasn't uh, exactly convinced of it himself. It's not clear from the text. Um, But whatever the case, Sarah was surprised at this idea. She was shocked at this idea. She was uh, not believing in it, and that's why she laughs. Notice all the barriers that we see, at least in her mind, of her having a son. Verse 11, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Literally, the, the phrase there, past childbearing, is literally in the Hebrew the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. This is a huge problem. She was post-menopause. Her reproductive years were over. She had already been barren her entire life, right? So she's doubly dead. Her womb is doubly dead. She had been barren, and now she's at the point where she can't bear a child even if she weren't barren. So she sees these obstacles. God, you can't do this. This cannot happen. And in addition, verse 11 says that Abraham was old also. Right Now Abraham and Sarah were old. Verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself. After I have become old, see again she says I am old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also, he's no young buck uh, anymore. He he can't have any uh, any more years of life in him, can he? She has all these barriers to her being able to have a son. And so notice her response in verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Isn't that the same response that Abraham had? Chapter 17, verse 17, we just read. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Sarah's thought is, this is crazy talk. How could I possibly have a child when I am old? 
I'm going to be 90 by the time this baby's born, and my husband is old too. And the implied answer is, it can't happen. Will that possibly happen? No. She's off in the distance, laughing to herself, but the Lord saw and heard her response, didn't He? He knew exactly what she was thinking. He knew exactly what she was doing. So God, in verse 13, demands faith in Him. Verse 13 says, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Now here, the Lord doesn't speak directly to Sarah. In fact, this whole narrative, He does not. He speaks to Abraham. And He asks Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? See, it's not just that God sees Sarah and what she does, but he, he knows what's in her heart. He sees inside of her. And that's exactly how God sees you. It's not just that He sees where you go. He doesn't just see what you say to people in your family. He doesn't just see what you watch on TV. He doesn't see what you just what you listen to on the radio or, or, or all these other activities that you participate in. He sees inside of you. He knows when you're listening to His Word preached and you hear something that sounds like it's not possible. And He knows when you're laughing inside that that could never happen. God could never change me in that way. God could never change my spouse or my child or this family member or my job situation. He could never do it. He knows what you're thinking. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have due. Proverbs 15.11 says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. In other words, the grave and death, they lie open before the Lord. God knows about all of it. And here's how the end of the verse reads, How much more the hearts of men you think God doesn't know you? He knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. We can't hide from God. Psalm 139 tells us that. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your love? If I, if I go to the, the, the edge of the earth, if I go to the depths of the sea, to the highest mountain, even to the depths of hell, you are there. I can't hide from you. And so we know that this is a matter of faithlessness on the part of Sarah. And we know that because of the next verse, verse 14. Is anything too hard or, or too difficult for the Lord? See what's going on here? Sarah is questioning God's power. In her laughing to herself, she is questioning God's power. In fact, in the Hebrew, that's exactly how it reads. Literally. Is any word of God void of power? We could read it in the positive. Sometimes it's difficult when we see it in the form of a question, so let me put it in the form of a statement. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Or all things are possible with God. God's power is connected to God's Word. This is an important point that you need to understand. People 
of power are feared by the enemies because of what they say and what they can do or what they have done. God's power is connected to God's Word. Let me try to illustrate that for you. Perhaps during this Christmas season you've been shopping and you come across parents in the aisles who are threatening their kids with false, empty promises. Right? The ones who say, if you do that again, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, then I'm going to fill in the blank. And they do it again. And what happens? Nothing. Right? you got the false threat, the false promise. And, and so the kids screaming at the top of, uh, of their lungs and the parents continue to give them more threats and yet they no, never do anything. Or perhaps you've seen the parents who... who um, I think teasingly say to their kids, bye, we're leaving without you. Why do the kids not believe that? Because they've never done that in the past, right? They've never actually followed through on that threat. And so it's an empty promise. You see, our word has power when we are true to our word. Does that make sense? Our our word has power when we are true to our word. And so if a child doesn't believe the word of his parents, some of the blame might fall on the parents because they're not following through on these threats. They're not acting on their word. And so the child just believes that they're just uh, crying wolf one more time. But God is never devoid of power because His word is always true. He's always been faithful to His Word. And so because He has always done what He said He would do, His words have power. His words can be believed. If we fail to trust God when He promises something, it's not because God has given empty threats. If you do that again, that's not God. The reason that we lack faith is because of us, because of our own hearts, because we are weak. For Sarah, she couldn't believe that God would do this. It had been 24 years and things were still the same. They, they, they knew about the promise. God's going to make a great nation through Abraham. He's going to bless all the peoples on the earth through Abraham. But 24 years, and what do we have to show for it? You haven't done anything through me, God, Sarah's thinking. And so what Sarah is doing here is she's actually ascribing weakness to God. So God's question here in verse 14 could be this. Sarah, am I weak? Am I powerless to give you a child? Do you believe that I can do the impossible? God had said in chapter 17, verse 1 to Abraham before he told him about this promise that he would have a child through Sarah. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. God has performed natural wonders, spiritual wonders. He creates. And He does all these things on the basis of His own good pleasure. We don't understand fully God's power because we don't see all of it. We don't always see it at work. Do you realize that God's power is limitless? This is how he should have viewed it. He should or she should have viewed God's power the way Jesus did. 
Listen to Jesus' prayer in Mark chapter 14. All things are possible for you, Father, he prays. Remove this cup or this cross from me, yet not my desire, not my will, but your will be done. All things are powerful, all things are possible for you, God, so remove this from me. But not my will, your will. See, the problem with our belief in God is often that we think God's power is limited to God's plan. Okay? So God has already planned out the course of human events, like the cross, right? He had already planned it out. Christ was going to go to the cross. It was already planned. It had already been prophesied. It had to happen. And yet Jesus still prays, all things are possible for you, but let your will be done. We don't pray that way. We don't pray, God, all things are possible for you because we think that God's power is limited to what He has already planned. That He can't do anything outside of His plan. But that's not really an accurate way to look at God's power. You see, we like to make God's power and the possibility of Him being able to do things very cut and dry. God can either do something or He can't do something. We need to understand that there is a sense in which there is something there's something that's possible for God and at the same time impossible because of his plan. Let me try to illustrate that for you. Suppose I invited you to dinner at my house on Friday night, but you answer, I can't come. I have other commitments. Well, I could ask, Do you have the ability to come? If you have the ability to come, do you have the power to come to my house? If you have the ability to come, then come. They say, no, I have other commitments. I can't come. So in one sense, you have the ability, the power to come. You have a vehicle. You're able to look up directions on the computer and find out where my house is. But you can't because of a scheduling conflict. So there is a sense in which you have, there's a possibility for you to be able to come, to have the power to come, and at the same time, you don't have the power to come. You see? When God promises what seems impossible, like He does here with Sarah, we should think two things. Number one, God's Word is always true. God's Word is always true. God, You have just promised me the impossible. But Your Word is always true. Secondly, You can do all things. That's how Jesus prayed. God, Your Word is always true. If all things are possible for you, so let this cup pass from me. That's how he prayed. You can do all things, God. He didn't say you're weak. You can't do this. You're, You're confined. You're a little bit shackled because of your plan. It's already been there, so you can't do this. That's not how Jesus prayed. So whatever promise God has made to you, you should think God can fulfill it because He can do anything because His Word is always true. God repeats the promise to Sarah in verse 14. At the appointed time, at the end of the verse, at the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Verse 15, Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. I think the point of that last interaction there between the Lord and Abraham is just to point out the faithlessness of Sarah here. 
Don't don't try to ignore or or to deny the fact that you you lacked belief in me. I know. I know what happened. And so we should learn from this passage that God can do whatever He pleases. We know this is true because God has always done whatever He pleased. Numbers chapter 11, verse 23. God promises meat in the desert. These people who had been eating manna for days and weeks and months and probably years. And it seems impossible. How could you provide meat for us? But Israel was not supposed to measure the probability of God's Word coming true over against the unlikelihood. You see, that's often the way we look at God's promises. What is the probability that this could actually happen? And if there is a slight probability, or if there's a high probability, I should say, of this happening, then I'll pray for it. Those things are that are way down here, you know, my family member coming to Christ when they've rejected God for years, they're so cold to the Gospel. That, that's not going to happen, so I'm not going to pray for that. And for the people of Israel, they weren't supposed to check God's Word against the unlikelihood of the event, the probability whether it was going to happen or not. God's Word was supremely authoritative and they should have trusted it as the very standard of truth. And by the way, did God provide? Oh yeah. He gave them quail to the point where they had to eat meat to the point where it was coming out of their... their I think it, the text says out of their noses. It was so disgusting because they didn't want it anymore. Stop giving us meat. We want Give us the manna back. Job chapter 42, verse 2. Job realizes at the end, when God approaches him, he says, God, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You can do, God, whatever you please. I don't understand your ways fully, but I can trust in you. That was Job's response. In Jeremiah 32, verse 15, God promised that the fields will once again be bought and sold in Judah. And in light of the impending fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, they're thinking, how could that possibly happen? These fields are never going to be white with harvest again. At least not in our day. But Jeremiah believes and he says, Ah, Sovereign Lord, nothing is too hard for You. You know what the most impossible thing that we have and we should be praying about in our day is the salvation of an unconverted person. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. He's telling the disciples that after the rich man comes, he turns him away and... They're shocked, confused. What? This man with all this great wealth, I mean, doesn't wealth signify that, that he's in favor with God? I mean, he, he, he's, he's done all these commandments. And their question is, if he can't be saved, then who can be saved? Do you remember what Jesus' response was? With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The point there was not that we had to be a certain way, that we had to work up to a certain level in society in order to be accepted by God, but but that we're all on the same plane before God. We're deserving of His condemnation, right? And so, the disciples were right. No one can come to God. It's impossible. 
but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Do you realize that you have to believe in the impossible in order to be saved? You have to believe that God saved you even though it was impossible? If you think that it was possible for you to be saved because of what you do, because of your response, then you don't understand the Gospel. The Gospel is that God does something that we cannot do. And that is the beauty of the Gospel. We can't take credit for it. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. When a dead person comes to life, it doesn't matter if they're really dead or mostly dead. All of them are dead. It requires a miracle on the part of God. It requires the impossible. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, it was an impossible thing for Jesus to raise him. And when you came to Christ, it was an impossible thing. You had to believe that God could do something that you cannot. So this narrative is gives us a window into our own hearts, I believe, because we are often like Sarah. We are, we are uh, lacking in our faith. And it's helpful for us to see from a bigger picture that overall Sarah did believe. We find, we find out about that in Hebrews chapter 11, that she was someone who believed God despite the odds. See, don't check it against the probability. Check it against who God is and what He can do. This narrative, I think, helps give us a contrast, shade for us the difference between Abraham and Sarah, the promises of the Son through them, and then this scheming that comes from Lot's daughters. Remember, Lot, you're going to find out about this later. Lot, Lot's daughters uh, have relations with him in order to have children through him. And so you have a sharp contrast between the, the moral heritage of these two groups of people. From Lot's daughters come Moab and Ammon, two wicked groups of people that would reign on the earth. And you also have a contrast between Abraham being a generous host and serving them hand and foot in Lot. He can't even save those men from the, the, the attack, at least, uh, at least uh, not in the fullest sense, from the attack of the wicked citizens. And so you see a contrast here between people who who uh, who follow God in faith and people who are just kind of coasting. And uh, certainly we want to be on the side of Abraham and as Sarah would later come around, to believe God and His promises despite the impossible. Let's pray. Father, I admit that I often don't pray for things unless I consider them to be a part of Your plan. And Really, in doing that, I acknowledge and I'm ashamed to say that, that I take your place. I think that I know what is best and, and how you will work, and I really become God in a sense. And I ask for your forgiveness, and I pray that you would help me to see more clearly, help our church to see more clearly that you are the God of the impossible. We're, we're not out to, to look for for lots of uh, earthly possessions from You. That's not what we're seeking to get. We want, when we're praying for the impossible, we want people to be saved. We want to see You bring people who are hardened and who 
from our perspective, seem so unworthy and un, uh, un, uh, unconcerned about spiritual things. People who have these hard shells, hard as Pharaoh, hard hearts. But we know that You can make the heart of stone into soft clay because You are the God who can do anything. Help us not to be lacking in our faith, to be weak, but to trust You despite the odds and to pray for these things. We know that You could do these things without us. You could easily make these things come to pass to see our family members, friends, neighbors come to Christ without us. But You choose to use our prayers as a means by which You bring them to Christ so that we can give You the glory for it. And that's what we want to do as a church. We want to come together in great praise to You because of the, the souls that have been saved as a result of our, uh, our faith in You. We pray that You would credit our faith as righteousness. We know that we cannot be counted as righteous on our own. We are wicked sinners. We are full of deadly poison. And uh, we need the cleansing work of Jesus Christ. We need His blood to, to wash us we need Him to stand in our place. So we recognize that we, we are unworthy before You. The best that we can do is be unworthy servants. But we do want to put our faith in You so that You can work through us as cracked vessels, jars of clay. May You use us as a church to bring more people to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and to also see people grow in their love and their desire to serve You more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 577. Our strength comes from the Lord, so we will sing, Be Strong in the Lord. 577, let me ask you to stand with me as we sing. Sing on the second verse. So put on the armor the Lord has provided and place your defense in His unfailing care. Trust Him, for He will be with you in battle, lighting your path to God promises you as a believer that you will that he will finish in you what he has started so you can count on that the struggles that you have against sin the struggles that I have against sin can be conquered because God has promised that they will and we can trust him for that let's pray Father we thank you for uh, your word tonight how it has helped shape us and to believe you more we pray that you would help us to consider these things as we go from this place and help encourage one another as long as it's called today so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.